This is Joe Rice, President and CEO of Mid-Pacific Institute. What would be your opinion on why the people should listen? Most knowledge, I believe, certainly can get it and read a book. You can do all of these things, like leadership, for instance. You can read the book, you know, Stephen Covey and all these different guys, you know, they tell you how to do what you should do. But the greatest knowledge comes from listening, watching, seeing. I think there's a message to be brought that will help people in their life or their business. So I'd say, listen, you, you may be surprised at what you hear, a few little nuggets. So yeah, I would think it's a, a good thing to do. You should tune in. Greater Good Radio. I use it as a rule of thumb that I'm trying to get about five times my money in three years or ten times my money in five years. Hi, we can design your home in one minute or less. Inspire. Inspire. If you are doing your passion on a daily basis, then you're never going to have to work a day in your life. Greater Good Radio, brought to you by Central Pacific Bank, Pierce Royal Banking. Welcome to Greater Good Radio Hawaii, where we develop tomorrow's leaders by bringing you up close and personal with today's top business people. Greater Good Radio Hawaii is dedicated to social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Evan Leong, and with me is my co-host, Carrie Leong. Today's show is brought to you by Central Pacific Bank, fiercely loyal banking. Thank you, Evan. Today's guest is David Heenan, trustee of the estate of James Campbell, former chairman and CEO of Theo H. Davies and Company Limited, and former vice president for academic affairs and dean of the business school at the University of Hawaii. Mr. Heenan is also a noted author of six books, including his newest book, Flight Capital. Please welcome to Greater Good Radio, David Heenan. Welcome to our show, David. Thank you. The House of Leong, I'm delighted to be here. You're a former executive of Citicorp. Formerly with Citicorp, formerly with Jardine Matheson, uh, which owned uh, Theo Davies and company. Yeah. How long were you there, and what did you do with them? At, at Citicorp. Yes. Uh, I was in. That was in New York. I was in charge of something called executive planning and development. It was really strategic planning, but I was primarily on the international side. I did that. Uh, for three years. Before that, I had been teaching at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, and Citibank was one of my uh, consulting clients. And uh, on the basis of that, they offered me a job and uh, the opportunity particularly to go overseas, and, and that was a great appeal to me. Uh, so I wound up in New York for three years and uh, was actually all set to go to the Philippines when the deanship at the University of Hawaii's business school opened up. I was 34 at the time. It seemed like a, an interesting thing to do. It was definitely a, a break, but uh, lo and behold, I came out here. Were you the youngest business dean? I think in the I was history? actually at that that time. Yeah, nationally. Yeah, it was the date was April 1st, uh, 1975. So, were you born and raised in Hawaii, or you were born no. and raised elsewhere? No, I was born and raised in the great city of Boston, and. Uh, Grew up in New England, went to college uh, in the South, went to William & Mary, which is, if you've ever been to Colonial Williamsburg, had a great time there. Uh, after that, I went in the Marine Corps, was a pilot for five years. On the basis of that, came back out, went to Columbia, got my MBA, 
uh, met my wife, got married in New York. Uh, we then went overseas. I worked for an oil company by the name of Caltex Oil. We were in Asia and uh, did that for a bit and then came back to the Wharton School, got a Ph.D. there, taught there, and that in turn put me in touch with Citicorp. So how did you get involved with the estate of James Campbell? I had been at uh, Theo Davies for a little over a dozen years, and uh, there was an opening up, and, and uh, as happens with Campbell Estate trustees, the, the family essentially does a search, uh, either independently or with a search firm, and put, puts out a net, and happily I was one of the fish swimming in the net and, uh, and came on board really 10 years ago. So it's been a great, great run. So you were teaching at this uh, Wharton School, then you went to go work with Citicorp, and then you went to the University of Hawaii to be um, the dean, right? Correct. When you were in the corporate world, what are some important things that you learned from working with a large corporation like that? Well, it was you know Citicorp in those days and today was was very much a fast track uh, company. It was in financial services, like your good sponsor. But it was really a go-go company. They they uh, were engaged in a bunch of businesses. They uh, the exciting thing about them is that they hired very very good people. They they paid you well. They, if you're a younger person, they get you into a running profit centers early in the game, so you didn't go through laborious training programs and and a lot of sort of Mickey Mouse stuff that happens with other other employees. They really threw you into things very quickly. And if you wanted to work overseas, which I did. Uh, they made that opportunity available to you. So it was a very, very exciting place. And I had this very interesting job for a year. Uh, it was a special assignment for the chairman and the president to really track and identify all of their high-potential people and their w- group they call corporate property. They're, they're most promising folks and get involved in their development and moving them around the world. That was, that was, a, that was a real kick. So it seems like you're kind of bouncing back and forth between corporate life and educating life yeah I've, i mean i've failed at a lot of things <laughs> no I've, i have uh, bought back and forth and you know at some point during the show we might talk i wrote a book about the subject called double lives and uh you know it really uh, suggests that we all have at least one other life in us and and you know let yourself go and and dabble in it you'll make yourself a lot more interesting individually and to others around you so would academ- academia be one life and then Business world be the second life for you. Uh, academia is one. The business world's another. My writing, I think, is a, is a separate uh, life as well. And and uh, those those are essentially the three. Your triple life then. A triple life, yeah. And then you you know you have guys like Winston Churchill that had about ten lives. He was a painter, a speaker, a, a statesman, uh, a pilot, a bricklayer. Uh, you know, a, a great. Uh, a, a great poet uh, and writer, won a Nobel Prize in literature. You know, amazing guy. A guy always reinventing himself, and I think that really is one of the lessons of, of the Double Lives book and, uh, and, and just, you know, trying to in- inject more balance in your lives generally. You're listening to Greater Good Radio Hawaii. Please visit us online at greatergoodradio.com. Today's guest is David Heenan, trustee of the estate of James Campbell and the former business dean of the University of Hawaii. David is also the author of Double Lives and Flight Capital. Our show is brought to you by Central Pacific Bank. Fiercely, low banking. Can you share with us maybe a few concepts from Double Lives that maybe can help us as business people? Well, I, you know, again, I think one of the key messages is don't draw lines around yourself that say I'm a broadcast journalist or uh, I'm a cost accountant or I'm a 
a proctologist or whatever. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, or a cost accountant proctologist. There you go. <laughs> the, the, I think they're synonymous, actually. Uh, no, you, you, you really want to, uh, I think, particularly as a younger person, uh, do some dabbling, do some experimentation. But, you know, the old notion of lifestyle planning used to be you did it when you were young, sort of up until maybe your very early 30s. Uh, that was the time, quote, to find yourself. And then you sort of did it at the back end of your life. When you retired, you then said, you looked back in your life and said, you know, what am I going to do now that I really wanted to do the last 20 years? But if you were sort of the great unwashed in the middle, if you were sort of 35 to, to 60, you hunkered down. You really focused on a profession, the law, business, you name it, and, and got really good at it, and you had to specialize. What I'm suggesting in the book, uh, the Double Lives book, is that lives uh, – uh, double lives aren't constrained by time, and that you know we all ought to uh, nurture it really through our entire life. In fact, many of these skills, whether it's painting or flying an airplane or uh, writing a book, are cumulative in nature. Skills sort of build on themselves, and the sooner you get in touch with that other side of you and start to develop those uh, those skills, put the building blocks in pay- place, the better off you are. How do you actually identify that? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you want to do some serious soul searching. You know, what what really turns you on? What uh, is there a hidden passion that you had maybe as a younger person that you'd really like to see emerge? Uh, talk to mentors and family members and others who, you know, might suggest, you know, you, you know, you really got an ear for music or an eye for art uh, or you can turn a phrase uh, and, and pick up their counsel. And then, you know, from that, uh, throw your heart into it. But it does take time. It takes effort. It takes commitment. And, and you've got to get real, too. You want to be realistic. What you don't want to do is you know, consider yourself a great tenor and you've, you, know, you've, you can't carry a tune. Uh, you want to get that sorted out so that you don't blow a lot of money going to writers' conferences and then all of a sudden you, you, know, you have a, a trouble stringing one paragraph. That's, uh, that's not where you want to go. But, but just build on your strengths and, and, and Take, uh, take, take life incrementally. Uh, these, these are building block kinds of things, one step at a time. And, uh, you know, you'll have some success, enjoy it, and then build on that. Are you able to share with us some of the people that you interviewed? In the Double Lives yes. book? Yeah. Uh, I mean, a fascinating guy is Norio Oga, who is the chairman of Sony. Norio Oga was a, uh, a, a symphony conductor. Uh, he was a, a, a great singer at, in uh, uh, an opera singer in his early days. He's a jet pilot. Uh, he's an on, obviously an entrepreneur. He's a calligrapher and a whole host of things. But when he joined, before he joined Sony, he was a professional opera singer. And he actually pointed out to Sony's chairman, Akio Morita and Saro Mobuka, that uh, as, a, as a youngster, that there were some serious defects in their then brand new tape recorder business. And these guys hounded him to join the company. He kept fending them off. And then finally he relented, but only on the promise from them that he could sing professionally on the opera opera circuit at night and on the weekends, but work for Sony by day. And he he did that for most of his working life until when he was 60. He then decided to have another life, and that was as a symphony conductor. And although he was the chairman of Sony at this time, he performed initially twice a year and then later five times a year. And, you know, he led the Boston Symphony, the Munich Symphony, uh, the Berlin Symphony, 
some of the great symphony orchestras around the world. He always came to Hawaii, by the way, and made a performance here uh, at Honolulu. But he just always had this dream and passion of being balanced. Uh, fascinating guy. Uh, Sally Ride, the astronaut I interviewed, uh, another very, very interesting gal. Grew up in Southern California. She was a tennis a phenom, uh, won herself a, sk- a scholarship to Stanford. She was a number one singles and doubles player on their team. They won two NCAA titles. Billie Jean King actually tried to, on several occasions, get her to drop out of college and and uh, join the pro circuit full-time. But a funny thing happened to her at Stanford. She fell in love with astrophysics, got a bachelor's, a master's, and a Ph.D. in astrophysics, was on the faculty, and then saw an ad from NASA to join the space program. And the rest is history. She was the first woman, of course, in space. After that, she came out and founded with Lou Dobbs of uh, uh, the nightly news show, uh, Space.com. She was the president of Space.com for three years, took that public, uh, left that a few years ago to set up a company called Imaginary Lines, Inc., out of San Diego, which is devoted to getting American women, young women, interested in careers in math, science, and engineering. You know, truly a multifaceted. She's written four books, great public speaker on a number of corporate boards. Interesting gal. Thanks, David. We'll talk more about that after the break. Stay tuned for more on Sports Radio 1420. How do you sell his company to Akamai Technologies for $3 billion? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who donates 6% of sales to make more money? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. How do you get 100 stores and 100 million in sales in less than 10 years? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who raised $50,000 in a few weeks for the tsunami relief? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. And all while benefiting the community. GreaterGoodRadio.com. Is managing your business finances taking up too much of your time? Welcome to the Money Minute from Central Pacific Bank. Today, we're talking with Gail E. Gay Young, Vice President of Cash Management. For many business owners, streamlining operational processes and managing cash flow are two concerns that I often hear. The good news is cash management tools can simplify or even automate many of these processes for you. With online tools via the Internet, it's easy to take care of funds transfers, ACH, and wire transfer needs. Today, even payroll processing and tax payments can be handled online. By using these and other cash management tools, you can actually have more control over your finances with less effort. The time you save can allow you to refocus your energy on other important areas, such as new business development or sales growth. Today's Money Minute is brought to you by Central Pacific Bank, where you'll always find bankers that are fiercely loyal to you. Central Pacific Bank, member FDIC. This is Gail Jennings from HawaiiDiner.com and EverybodyEats.org. I read selectively all of the papers, but I tend to read more of the columns at Star Bulletin. A lot of it is I like Erica Engel. I like her column, The Buzz. I get good information from that. I like their coverage of the different issues. I like the Star Bulletin. Would you recommend other people to read Star Bulletin? Absolutely. I think we need to be as informed as possible. This is Jim Tollefson, President and CEO of the Chamber of Commerce of Hawaii. I definitely would recommend the Chamber of Commerce to others. The benefits are that you get to meet other businesses, you get to work together with other businesses, and help you improve your business to make more money to be successful. If 
or not a member already, can give me a call. 545-4300, extension 388. I invite you to join us in creating a better Hawaii. Hawaii that's better for us, for our children, and for the future. We're back with David Heenan, trustee of the state of James Campbell, business executive, former dean of the business school of the University of Hawaii, and noted author of the book, Double Lives and Flight Capital. David, all these people that you've interviewed for your books are highly successful people. What characteristics are you seeing between them that, you know, are standard for all of them? Yeah, actually, you know, in the Double Lives book, I had to be careful because if I had just, you know, natural bond geniuses, you know, the average reader would say, hey, look, that's great for Winston Churchill or Sally Ride or Noria Oga, but I'm, you know, I'm Joe Blow. How does that apply to me? So there are three or four people in that book, including a couple from Hawaii, uh, who are, you know, just sort of folks like you and me. Uh, Chuck Watson, who actually ran Dillingham at construction at one point and then later became Hawaiian dredging, was quite a famous sculpture. You'll see a lot of his big stuff. Uh, if you know the business school at UH, uh, one of his pieces is there. Uh, but they're all over the Pacific, uh, major league, uh, world-class sculptor. Uh, now, here's a guy running, you know, Dillingham Construction, but did this all the way up, up the career path. But there are other folks, uh, other folks like that also in the book. There's a great chapter, I think, uh, in there on a guy named Tom Lynch, who uh, is a mortician or undertaker in Milford, Michigan. In fact, I got a note from him just yesterday, but he's one of the great poets of the United States. He's won a National Book Award, uh, uh, an American Book Award. Uh, he's in all of the major publications. Uh, just a real kick. But here's a guy who found that you could balance putting people away, <laughs> literally, and, and uh, iambic pentameter at the same time. I, interv- I started our interview in, believe it or not, his embalming studio, which I was glad to escape after several minutes but you know here's a guy who just he felt there was absolutely no contradiction between being a an undertaker and being a great writer and uh, you know would would tell you and your listeners you know if you have a double life or another interest scratch it and and let it let it leap out so uh you know i think everybody can do it but I, the the key really evan to your, your point is they all had a passion for this other other dimension you really have to it's something you really want to do because it, uh, you know, we're all, it's a 24-7 world. You've got family commitments. You've got kids. Uh, you've got economic pressures. And to sit down and, you know, write a book from 12 at night to 3 in the morning as some of these people that I interviewed did uh, or, or you know, just really budget your time uh, and then have the patience to let those projects uh, endure really does take a, a high level of commitment. So they all had a strong belief in themselves and a passion for what they were doing. You know, I wanted to touch upon your other book, Flight Capital. Um, could you tell us what your thoughts on the brain drain is? Yeah, um, you know, the Flight Capital book really came from observations I made right here in Hawaii. I, I just, you know, for years would see people from Asia 
stream through here, boat people from Vietnam, scientists from South Korea, uh, on their way generally to the mainland to create a new lives for the, life for themselves. But about five or six years ago, I noticed more and more of them, uh, many of them now in the country, 5, 10, 20 years, highly successful American citizens by this point, starting to make a U-turn going back to their native countries. And uh, that that movement really picked up after 9-11 when, I think for all the obvious reasons, we tightened the borders and the immigration laws got uh, a lot tougher in many respects, uh, a lot more ham-fisted, probably not well thought out. And that created a chillier environment for both potential overseas recruits to the U.S., but also people in the country. And according to my statistics and accounting, uh, the country, the U.S., is losing probably on a daily basis somewhere between 500 and 1,000. These are foreign-born Americans, many of them in leading-edge professions in science, technology, and medicine, exactly, exactly the kind of people you'd like to keep your hooks into. So what prompted you to write this kind of a book? Well, I, I just, I mean, I, I saw it as a, a major league concern because here are our best and brightest were walking out the door. And I, I know, I mean, we all have seen the surveys that study after study indicates that the U.S. is in for a massive uh, work shortage, labor shortage. Uh, it's estimated maybe 10, 10 million jobs by 2010. Uh, a lot of those jobs in, in the skill areas, we hear about nurses, scientists, and so forth. And by the same token, We haven't been growing our own native-born kids in science, math, and engineering. Those fields have have fallen off the rows today. Kids want to major in sports management or they want to be broadcast journalists. Uh, So it was really a perfect storm, not training our own homegrown kids and seeing these imported, this imported talent, which we used to have a lock on, start to walk out the door. So a real concern uh, and, and one that I felt passionate about enough so that I, I devoted three years to putting the book together. You're listening to Greater Good Radio Hawaii. Please visit us online at greatergoodradio.com. Today's guest is David Heenan, trustee of the state of James Campbell. He serves on the boards of Bank of Hawaii, Maui Land and Pineapple Company, and several other organizations. Our show is brought to you by Central Pacific Bank, fiercely low banking. So David, you know, being that these people are going back to their home countries, what do you think the USA can do to keep these people here, keep the talent here? Yeah, I, I think uh, the book recommends two really distinct sep, uh, sets of, of recommendations. One relates to, on the back end, this issue of, of trying to train and develop our own homegrown kids and trying to really get them re-energized in careers in science, math, and engineering. And you know that's that's gonna that's gonna take uh, some time and effort. There are people like Bill Gates at Microsoft and Craig Barrett at Intel that are out on the stump, going to campuses and and uh, and high schools, talking to kids and trying to rein, reinvigorate them. Uh, but I think research budgets and the like have to uh, have to be increased at, at at universities and 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 we have to make these subjects more interesting than they've been in the past because they they clearly have fallen in, into disfavor. So. A large chart, a chunk of the recommendations really relate to to that that dimension. The other half uh, relate to the immigrants themselves. That we have to, we are a nation of immigrants. We have to be more welcoming uh, than we have been in recent years, and this means eliminating uh, the, uh, the the cap on what are called H one B visas for skilled uh, personnel. 
to allow more scientists, engineers, and mathematicians and so forth into the country uh, to increase, I think, our number of foreign students. The U.S. only, of the total student population here, only 4% of our total student body are from abroad. Australia and Switzerland, for example, at 17%. I think we need more uh, kids over here from abroad in in the high schools. We used the the old foreign exchange program, which used to be very active. Now with working families, single families, that's fallen off a bit. So that has to be re-energized. But I think, importantly, we just really have to feel newcomers, uh, make newcomers to the country feel more welcome. So as trustee of the James Campbell Estate, could you tell us what you do and a little bit more about the estate? Yeah, the, well, you know, the estate has had a storied history. We, we started in 1900. Uh, as you perhaps know, Less than a year from now, the estate will officially terminate, and we will then convert what uh, what has been a trust form of organization into a limited liability company. Uh, and the trustees, including yours truly, will will disappear. And I may have my own radio show. Who knows if if this goes well? But uh, so we're in a very interesting transition period, and a lot of what we've been doing over the last few years has been really gearing up for this quite monumental shift and to get everybody on board. Uh, but essentially, the employees will uh, will all simply change uniforms uh, on January 20th, 2007. There'll be a new board of directors, uh, uh, somewhat akin to the trustees, but probably not as actively involved as we are. Uh, and it'll continue on and, and I'm sure not miss a beat. So uh, that's that's been our focus as a trustee. There are four of us, uh, and and we're primarily involved in setting the strategy and of of the enterprise and monitoring organizational performance, evaluating our executive team, and uh, keeping uh, in close touch with our beneficiary community, of which there are thirty or so income takers and and a hundred or so uh, family members. Is there a charitable trust? portion of Campbell Estate? Yeah, we, we have, uh, I mean, we, sort of two forms of giving. One is at, at the enterprise, the trust level, uh, through various community support activities. But there is the James and Abigail Campbell Foundation, and uh, uh, they have been very generous uh, to a variety of Hawaii projects. Uh, uh, education would be a, a major one. The Hawaiian community would be certainly a major one, given our location and the development of Kapolei, uh West Oahu tends to be our, our backyard and our favorite area, so you know, right up to Waianae, Nanakuli, and so forth, we've tried to be uh, as generous as we possibly can be. So what are you planning on doing after the estate more or less changes over? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. I'm, uh, I'm, in, I'm in this career planning mode myself. Uh, I've, I've, I probably haven't given it as much thought as I, uh, I may. Uh, given my background, I have done a lot of teaching. I probably will have uh, an academic appointment at at, at some place. Uh, I'd like to do some traveling. I Is that clearly, college level or high school level? No, at the, at the college level. Probably at you know sort of the MBA level or executive programs. Uh, I do a lot of public speaking. Um, the Capital Speakers Bureau. Uh, I'll I'll do some of that. My wife and I'd like to do some traveling. Um, I'll stay on some corporate boards probably. And the nonprofit boards that you're involved with, what prompts you to do that? Well, I think it, you know, it engages you in a, a wider section of the community. Uh, I've, over the years, been involved in a, in a ton of them. Uh, 
what what I find most enjoyable now is as a, as a offshoot of the book production and uh, and the speaking opportunities is that I've really used that as a leverage to get out and around to high schools, to colleges, to book clubs, uh, rotary groups, uh, exchange clubs, and so forth, and try to try to get the message of of each one of those books uh, in in front of a much wider audience, and that's really where my attention has been recently. So if you could take Flight Capital and have one minute to give the message from the whole book, what would that one-minute message be? Well, I think you know, the message is that um, ideally it would be great for every American leader in business, government, or the nonprofit world to, to get on an airplane, preferably with a business class ticket, <laughs> and go to some of these economic supernovas. The, I mean, the Irelands, the Israels, the Singapores. We hear a lot about China and India and see exactly what is taking place over there. I mean, these countries are not taking prisoners. Uh, the world today is real flat, as Tom Friedman likes to remind us. It's much more competitive, and particularly when it comes to educating, training, and building uh, brain trusts, uh, these these countries are very, very actively on on a definite mission to do that. And if we aren't very, very careful... With, with our human talent, and that's stockpiling both imported talent and building our own talent, uh, our economic standard of living and, uh, and even national security are going to be very much compromised. So we've got to get with it, and, and the time is running out. You know, the National Science Board uh, just took a look at where we are today versus the late 60s, early 70s. Their estimates were, with some of the reforms that they're talking about, I'm talking about, It'll take 10, maybe even 20 years to get back to our relative ranking in the 1960s. So, I mean, this is important stuff. Okay, well, thank you so much for your message, and thank you for joining us today on Greater Good Radio, Mr. David Heenan. For more information or a transcript of today's show, please visit us online at greatergoodradio.com. This is your host, Evan Leong and Carrie Leong, saying please join us next time for another episode of Greater Good Radio Hawaii. This show is brought to you by Central Pacific Bank. Fiercely loyal banking.